The Third Men Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! Welcome back to the Third Men Podcast. This is a Jack White and Third Man Records history program, and I am your co-host, Paul Kaminsky. James, I see your mouth is full of pizza. Um, wait, wait, hold on. Yes, yes, I can confirm. Hold on, somebody's telling Yes, it is pizza. Pizza is in your mouth. Would you like yep. to tell the uh, people at home or in their cars or whatever why you've <clears throat> got pizza in your mouth when we record <laughs> Because we happen to record this at the time that dinner happens, and um, so I'm excluded from dinner, <laughs> and then Ariel has to put the babe to sleep. So yeah, I uh, thanks um, for calling that out. Uh, this is the scandal of the century. One could call it Pizzagate. Pizzagate. And tw- Pizzagate 2021, Pizzagate 2. James, um, it looks like a rat is taking the pizza out of your mouth and carrying it up a flight of stairs. What's going a, on over he's a there? Real, he's a real hero we deserve. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes, guys- though, <laughs> sometimes, though, you'd expect a modern home not to have rats in it. But <laughs> uh, but no, they're here. It's a very real problem. Yeah. I think I smell it, though. We, hey. as I mentioned, are a Jack White history program, we- and we sometimes talk about albums and sometimes talk about uh, other assorted media tours, things like that. And then on occasion, some very talented and legendary musicians choose to spend their afternoon talking to us and answering obscure questions about their lives. Mm -hmm. That happened again. The done happened again. Yeah, no, I, I feel like we are the, bus stop to a better interview like they're just waiting here (laughs) they're waiting here until their next interview with the with the real journalists bus stop of podcasts yeah Yeah. no we're just listen you're gonna get to where you're going you are gonna get COVID 19 oh no but it will be affordable (laughs) yeah jesus well well this is good this is a good intro that's what i call 
So we've got one of said legendary musicians joining us on the program today. We're very excited about this. Of the Gories, the Demolition Doll Rods, Danny and the Darlings, The Go, apparently, and his own new solo material out now on Third Man Records. We've got Mr. Danny Croa joining us today on the program. Wow, this was a fun interview. We had mentioned this to to Danny when he was on the show. Like His name just pops up over and over and over and over again. Yeah throughout the third man world and throughout the Detroit punk slash garage slash alternative rock scene slash blues scene. He's all over the map. Yeah. Um, he's just in the music, genres. in the music scene over in Detroit. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, he's been at it for a long time doing some really groundbreaking stuff. And as we learned in the interview, I guess we sort of knew this, but for me, it came in clearer focus after we talked to him. Boy, not only was Jack White like a super fan of the Gories, but a lot of what the White Stripes are is reflected in what the Gories were doing about 10 years prior. This is not to say that uh, anybody was ripping anyone off, of course. It was just, you can see a very clear influence. And I guess, you know, we've had Mick Collins on the show, who's also in the Gories, but I guess I never really wrapped my head around just how connected those two groups were in spirit, mm-hmm. you know? It's yes, it did actually make it a lot clearer, as you said, the connection between because we we had known the connection between Dex Romweber and the Flat Duo Jets and the White Stripes. Like there's some obvious connections there. But when you take a look at the Gories and what they did and represented and their, let's say, I mean, boiled down. Yeah, uh, just bare bones. This is what. This is yeah. what music is and what blues can be. I, I don't know. It's it's a very interesting way to... Uh, it's a bit primal almost. Yeah. It puts the White Stripes in a, in a new light to me. Right. So this primal, is a long interview. That's the word I'm looking for. So, so this is a, a long interview, so we're not going to belabor this too much. But James, we got a lot of great feedback from the last two episodes, our Dodge and Burn parts one and two. And some of you listeners out there decided to open up a an agency i believe uh nikki the nose is a listener he opened up an agency and there's a couple others of you out there have opened detective agencies to sleuth out some stuff that we were asking about on our program james this is rough detectives <gasps> q robert stack robert <laughs> q robert <laughs> q robert stack get rabbit on here Each one is searching for that vital clue to end a story that so far has no ending. Also, two other intriguing mysteries needing but one final clue to solve them. Someone watching tonight may know the truth. Indubitably, my good woman. James, would you like to tell the people what Rough Detectives is? I was about to. Yes. <laughs> uh, no, uh, yeah, um, Rough Detectives is a segment of the show when we, usually us or the audience members out there, you guys, sleuth audience out. Members. Audience, audience members. <laughs> this podcast is filmed in front of a live studio audience. You can't see them because it's a podcast, but they're there, rest assured. 
anyway, it's when uh, either us or you find some information. You really just dig down deep and uh, find some information on a question that we had and uh, figure it out. You become detectives. Yes. Yeah, so in our Dodge and Burn, I believe it was part one episode, we asked about the guy named Lars Fox, Mm -hmm. who is credited as edits or editor Mm -hmm. on the Dodge and Burn album. And I had never seen a credit like that on a music project before. Obviously, that is my profession (laughs) in publishing, but I... I've never seen that credit in music, and I asked a few people, and they didn't know the answer, and I couldn't really find anything online to shed light on this. But at Stone underscore Ager on Twitter did, Scott here tweeted at us, could this be the guy? Has knobs from a mixing desk as his avatar? The fixer? Not many tweets, though. So we looked into it. Yeah. At Lars underscore Fox on the Twitter appears to be the Lars Fox in question. And the reason I believe this very strongly is that Joe Ciccarelli follows him for some oh. reason. Huh. We tweeted at him, and we have yet to hear a response. One, no, could call, I, yeah. one could call that tweet a letter to the editor. A letter to the editor. That's very nice, James. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> we did find him. So thank you, Scott, or at Stone underscore A-G-E-R, Ager. Uh, Stone Ager? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's awesome that you were able to sleuth that out. So anyway, that's been Rough Detectives. Let's get to this. Let's get out of here. Let's get out and go on the next case. Okay. Um. Yes. Book them. Da- book them, Dano. Let's climb in our dick mobile and oh. always, always on the on the, <laughs> the famous person interview episodes. <laughs> it's elementary. What ties these events together is a global conspiracy that began at the start of World War II. It may still be going on today. All right, let's get into this interview with Danny Crow. What do you say? <laughs> yes, please. We'd like to welcome a very special guest to the Third Men podcast today, Mr. Danny Croa. Danny, thank you so much for joining us today. It's amazing to have you on the show. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks, guys. Yeah, we've talked about Detroit music on this show for so long, and your name keeps popping up just over and over and over again. Your music's legendary to us. We've heard it so much, so it's it, <laughs> the honor is ours. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Yeah, in doing the research for this episode to figure out our questions and stuff, it was like, God, I don't know if we're going to have time to get to all this because you are one of those figures like Ko, who's just been everywhere and done everything. And you have a zillion projects and a zillion albums, and they're all different from one another. You have a distinct sounds for each of them. But we'll start here today talking about your latest release. At the time of this recording, your new album has not come out yet, but you have a new record, your sophomore solo release on Third Man Records, Detroit Blues. Congratulations on the record. Thank you. It's a long time coming. <laughs> yeah, it's been, what, five years, right? I recorded it, I think, two years ago. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, you know, I, like, presented to Ben. I'm like, hey, are you interested in doing another one? They're like, yeah, but, you know, we got a lot of stuff scheduled. Can you wait? And I was like, yeah, no problem. <laughs> you know, I'm not... <laughs> doing anything you know i've got other things going on so it's i'm not in a big hurry and it's not like 
time sensitive music, you know, where it's going to be out of date in a couple of years. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, there is a timeless sense to the music. Yeah. Yeah, we should say that much like your 2015 album, Angels Watching Over Me, this record dips back into the past for the sounds of. God, I, I don't know what you'd even call it. I mean, it's Delta. There's some Delta blues in there. There's some like Americana folk. It's funny. One of my favorite Bruce Springsteen records is called We Shall Overcome the Seeger Sessions. And he dips into huh. some of the same kind of stuff. I never heard that stuff. Wow. So anyway, you dip back into some Americana, some folk songs. And I guess, uh, you know, we'll sort of start with why as a rock and roller primarily you decided to dip into this song catalog from so long ago and maybe a little bit about how your song choices came about. Well, I always wanted to sing blues and play blues, but that route, especially for a middle-class white man, is pretty cliche, you know? Mm. So I was just trying to think of, like, how can I do this and not sound cheesy? It's a conundrum, you know? Yeah, What can I do... You know, that's like maybe a little bit different and it's not cheesy and because I love this material, I want to sing it. And well, you know, I mean, I can just start talk about how I started getting into it, like open tunings and all that stuff was through Keith Richards, you know. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love the Rolling Stones, the original white boys who played blues, you know, <laughs> and they did it really well and they looked great doing it you know and i mean luckily in the gories i had mick who was down to do that kind of stuff you know i mean he you know he has a a very wide ranging taste in music much wider than mine really and as i look back on that i'm really lucky that he was willing to do that to pigeonhole himself into that sort of garage blues thing because, I mean, yeah, of course he could do that really well, but that wasn't his only thing. And he was also always afraid of being pigeonholed as that thing, which he ended up being to his chagrin sometimes. Right, right. <laughs> but I was lucky that he wanted to do that kind of thing. But yeah. all I wanted to do was sing blues, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, after the Gories, like, there was a time when I wanted to, like, do a duo. Make, let's just do a duo and let's just play blues, you know? And, I mean, he's not that interested in that you know he wants to you've heard all the other stuff he's done i mean oh yeah you know he likes to do all kinds of stuff he's got a surprisingly prevalent bubblegum fascination beyond just the bubblegum record he did but i think that's what i like so much about your combination is Mm -hmm. that he has that poppier ear he does yeah and you kind of give the sharp edge and together you guys make a really nice sound thanks man yeah so with the blues thing like i was like all right well i started learning the open tuning stuff from keith Richards, reading articles in guitar magazines like okay i tune the guitar to open d on this song or i tune the guitar to open g on this song and so i was like all right let's figure out how do you do this how do you make that open g how do you make stuff with that how you know and i started playing stone songs with those open tunings and then i'm like all right well I started, you know, collecting old-time gospel and blues stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I loved, you know, chess stuff and all that, but I'm like, well, let's get a little further back. Let's find something different. Yeah. <laughs> right, you know? yeah. And you went way further back. <laughs> yeah, so I got this record called Gospel Piano and Guitar Classics. It's one of those document records. 
Yeah. And I know Third Man had a thing with document for a minute, but those document records were a big influence. And there was a store called Car City Records here in, in a suburb of Detroit that carried a lot of that document stuff. So I'd go there and buy that stuff. And I just like started trying to figure out how to adapt some of these old time gospel tunes to open tunings and just figuring out how to do it myself. And I don't know, it must have been maybe around like 2000 two or 2004 maybe it was around 2004 i went over to warn the fevers and tried to do some solo stuff yeah in fact i did actually did some recordings with mick that that never came out where mick was playing drums oh and i was covering like a small faces song and i did some other things you detroit guys always have like a ton of secret albums (laughs) like that's one thing we find you're like oh yeah i've been sitting on this record for 20 years i don't know what i'm gonna do with it we're like what come on yeah it wasn't really an album i I did like four or five songs but i was trying trying to make a way for myself in that direction and one of the things i did was i recorded before this time another year which was one of those old gospel songs you know yeah in an open tuning that i kind of invented my own way of playing it that it's kind of crude and i'm like i'm not sure if this is going to work but i'll try it and i recorded it and i listened to it and i'm like i'll be damned i like this you know like yeah this is pretty good i can (laughs) i think i can do this you know right so i started working on that stuff more you know and um like a lot of folk guys are really good at that kind of stuff, you know. Someone who calls himself a folk musician who plays old time music is generally like super good at finger picking and super good at playing those old styles really accurately. That's not me. I can't do that. Like, yeah, I don't know if I just don't want to. I'm just too lazy to try <laughs> to learn it properly. But I just kind of come up with. Plus, you know, I mean, I've seen blues performers you know it's not like it's not just i've heard it on record like i've seen people in action i kind of know how they do things i mean they with like listening and learning and watching you figured out that people a lot of times what they call an original song is a half remembered old song that they just threw in some of their own stuff to (laughs) That's right. And then it's like, oh, yeah, I wrote that. (laughs) Yeah. So I was like, yeah. See, when Plant and Page start doing that, that's when you got to bring them to Yeah, right. Because they're making too much money (laughs) and not spreading it around, (laughs) not giving people credit. Yeah, but, you know, that's that's it. So I'm just going to figure out my own crude way of doing this because I like crude playing. I like crude singing and simple stuff. And if you can pull it off, it works really well. I mean, that's the heart of the blues, isn't it, is is just a realness and – kind of raw sound yeah and just making up your own way of doing it yeah right. you know yeah i totally understand and it it comes across prominently in your work like it's i wouldn't call it crude but it, it is it's there's a real like you could hear your voice coming through in it and i i really <laughs> appreciate that your music Yeah, 
there's a lot of humanity on Angels Watching Over Me and Detroit Blues so far. Well, one thing that I discovered was the songster tradition, like the, like the pre-blues stuff. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, people like Mississippi John Hurd and Lad Belly were playing material that they remembered from like the 1890s. Yes. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so yeah. that was in 19 in the 1920s when they were recording this stuff. That stuff was already oldies. Yeah, that was like these were 50, 30, 50 year old songs that these guys were recording. Right. There's a track on Angels Watching Over Me. I think you do John Henry and that one. Yeah, that one must go back that far. Yeah. And I was like shamelessly doing like the most well-known folk songs. It's like like I didn't care. I just wanted to do my own versions of them. It's kind of like where Rod Stewart or Bob Dylan are doing like their sta- American standards and they're doing like Frank Sinatra, Cole Porter song, stuff like that. This is kind of right. like my version of that idea, my American standards. Album. Yeah, right. of course. You know? I mean, if yeah, you think about um, it, Stop Breaking Down has been recorded a million times and it's still a classic. Every time I hear a new version, I'm okay with it. So, Yeah, and on this new record, Poor Howard, James, you were talking about, you know, it, it's got that personal quality to it. There's such a warmth to the recording. Thanks, man. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about like when you're putting these records together, it's clear to me at least, or I would surmise that you're going for a production style that's maybe fitting for the type of music that you're recording. So it sounds, I wouldn't say one takey, but it sounds a lot like, you know, how they were doing it back in the day where, you know, Robert Johnson would sit in the corner of the room. So his voice would reverberate off the walls kind yeah. of shit. Exactly. So what, exactly. Can you tell us, was that in your head when you're doing this? You're thinking, okay, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I'm not trying to reproduce a 1920s sound, but I do want to sound like a dude sitting in a room playing and singing. Yeah. You know, even with like recordings, I don't know, like like Mike Seeger recorded Doc Boggs later in his life in his home. He just showed up at his house with like a, a mic and a nice recorder and just set up one mic and Doc Boggs played in his living room and sang in those later... Doc Box Folkways albums are great. I love that stuff. You know, I love that yeah. sound. John Cohen recording Roscoe Holcomb at his house in Kentucky. You know, again, just coming in with one mic and a recorder and, re- and right. just him singing and playing in his living room. So, yeah, I was going for that kind of like dude in a living room kind of sound, you know? Yeah. And I just play and sing. I overdub some percussion and I overdub some. A one string bass that's made out of a clothesline kind of it's not <laughs> it's not a wash tub it's actually a a five gallon metal can like a five gallon bucket but it's metal oh, that i found by the side of the railroad track <laughs> <laughs> oh, i was I driving that. down uh i think i was driving down livernoy one day i crossed some railroad tracks and i saw this 
five-gallon pail, metal pail, laying by the side of the tracks. I'm like, man, that's kind of cool looking. It had like this bright, it was yellow with this bright red writing on it. It said fire snake. And I thought, wow, that's kind of cool. So I stopped my car and went over to the railroad tracks and picked it up, threw it in the back and, you know, went on my way. And then I thought, man, I could make like a one-string bass out of this thing. That would be pretty cool. So I did and. That's what I use. So I did that, and then I also would, like <laughs> play jog on some of it. Now, have you considered calling your solo project Fire Snake at this point? You Fire prob- Snake is good. It's it's pretty good. It's a good name. I'm I'm afraid it might be already trademarked though. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's fair. If it's not, they should. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you mentioned it was around the early 2000s when you were starting to get into the stuff and the open tuning and, right. and stuff. So another thing that happened was I got Harry Smith's anthology on CD. Yeah. I'd never heard it before. It came out on CD in 97. And I I probably got it like 98 or 99, something like that. And I started listening to that. And that just blew my mind open, you know. Yeah. And then Old Brother Where Out There came out. I wasn't like a big fan of that movie, but I liked it. And there was just something in the air around 2000. Yeah, that just yeah. got me into that stuff, you know? Yeah. I was going to say, you know, I mean, we're going over the vastness of your career as we talk here. I mean, you're known for a lot of different groups. The Gories is the, is one of the big ones. Demolition Doll Rods is another big one. I wanted to mention, with the Doll Rods in 2004, you guys covered Amazing Grace on there. And mm-hmm. I thought, was that maybe a, a precursor to this? I mean, w- did you have that at all in your head when you were... <sighs> Not really, no. No, 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 no. Just Margaret also likes old-time gospel songs. Okay. And gotcha. I think we just both really love that song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a beautiful version, too. I oh, don't I'm glad you like it, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't listened to it in a while. i got to go back and check it out. records are excellent i mean thanks i want to talk a little bit about the new doll rods record you released in a moment but i just wanted to talk just for a moment more you, you put out a video for poor howard which right. is exactly what you're talking about it's right. you and basically a living room you can kind of hear the floorboards you know as you're going sort of thing and, yeah it's plaster walls wood floors you know yeah, it has a sound yeah. anything else you could tell us uh, about the records song choices any some highlights from the recording from the new album well, one thing I'm I'm kind of proud of is that I mix things up a little bit. I like to mix up, you know, like black and white country traditions. You know, if it's I don't want it to be all blues, I don't want it to be all hillbilly. I like mixing it up because a lot of those guys back in the day worked together and traded songs and yeah. A lot of the early country canon was shared between black and white folks. Right. You know, yeah. So to me, that's an important point. So I do sort of like I mix that up, and then I also mix up words with different music. You know, like I'll be listening to something, 
I'll be like, boy, you could take that Doc Boggs tune and sing House of the Rising Sun to it, and it works. <laughs> you know? Or you can take uh, a Furry Lewis song and sing some Charlie Poole lyrics. Charlie Poole was a white, one of the early white country guys. Mm-hmm. And, and you could sing the Charlie Poole lyrics to this Furry Lewis song, and it, it works. You know? So that kind of stuff is intriguing to me. There is a house in New Orleans They call the rising sun And it's been the ruin of many a poor girl And me, I know I'm one From what I've heard from not only this interview, but previous interviews is that you've had a, a fascination with, you know, going back and looking at the, the folk and roots stuff. How early did that start? Like, when when did you start actually playing music? Do you have any early influences? I know you... Oh, uh, in general? Yeah, in general. Well, I played tuba when I was nine years old. I started playing tuba. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> you were a tuba man? I awesome. was. Yeah, nice. and... I really wanted to play guitar. I wanted to play rock and roll guitar. I really liked the Partridge Family when I was mm-hmm. like six. The Partridge Family was on TV. Yeah. We think we love that too, but we're wondering what we're so afraid of. <laughs> well, I mean, Both. when you're six, it's pretty damn cool. <laughs> you know? I love the Partridge Family. No, and I was, I love that. And uh, yeah, we saw David Cassidy in his Vegas show. It was awesome. What? <laughs> yeah. Oh my it was a God. magic show? It was, yeah, it was like Are you kidding show. me? I'm no, not, he, no. It was wow. FX, I think it was called, in Vegas. Yeah. It was yeah wild. It was oh, that's cool. <laughs> no, Danny Partridge was my dude. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Because he was such a little punk, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's a badass. <laughs> Continued and that he tradition really into didn't, his You know, boxing. he didn't give a shit. I mean, yeah. yeah. I remember there's a story where David Cassie said to uh, uh, Bonaduce, he's like, dude, you don't strum the bass. You got you to gotta pluck it. Like, don't. Please, just don't strum it like a guitar, okay? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, no, I thought Danny Partridge was a cool little punk, and he had red hair, and kind of like me and my family, all a bunch of redheads. And when I was a little kid, all the TV shows had bands. Josie and the Pussycats, and uh, Groovy Ghoulies, and On and On Sugar Bears. Everybody was a band. That's where the bubblegum music thing comes in. You know? Oh, yeah. yeah. The Huge Archies. influence. The Monkees. You know, when you're a kid, I mean, Josie and the Pussycat song rocks, man. <laughs> you know? For sure, yeah. So Sugar Sugar, all that. Yeah, all that stuff, you know. So that was an early influence and just wanting to be in on this thing that was happening. So... Of all the things you could have said to answer this question, I was not expecting you to go in that direction. <laughs> well, you're talking about early. I mean, you say, yeah, yeah, what's yeah. your earliest thing that you were aware <laughs> yeah, of? Right, right. That's it. Well, I was expecting you, know? you to listen to some kind of, I don't know, what, hard rock in your, <laughs> when you were super young, because your your guitar playing is so visceral. I mean, yeah. it was, oh, you thanks, mentioned man. tuba. When did you pick up guitar? So I wanted to play guitar, and my mom was like, no, no, you're too little. You won't be able to hold the strings down, la, 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 you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember when I was, I was five in like 1970, and they had guitars at like the equivalent of like a CVS or a Walgreens. Right. <laughs> they had cheap Japanese guitars on a rack, and I was like, oh, I want one. You know? Right, right. But that wasn't happening. So, so then we got to the school band stage. I was nine years old, and I wanted to play drums. 
next best thing, right? It's a rock and roll band instrument. My mom's like, nope, no drums. And I'm like, oh God, okay, now what? I'm not playing flute. I'm not playing clarinet. I was like, what is this big horn over here? (laughs) I want to play that giant horn. (laughs) You picked a literal albatross to wear around your neck. It's great. great. (laughs) And I'm glad I did because it's the bass. You know, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. the foundation of the band. It's the so I I started out playing bass, and we would play stuff like the theme to Rocky or Hello yeah. Dolly or <laughs> right. <you> <laughs> <know>. <laughs> right. Now, if what I've read is correct, you joined a band in your teen years called Start. That's correct? right. Yeah, and it later turned into Onset. Yeah. So I had gone to college for a year and my dad wanted to be going to business administration and they were like, okay, you're going to college. Uh, I'm being the oldest. I just kind of did what they said. I mean, I had other ideas, but I wasn't that rebellious. I was quiet, very quietly rebellious, you know? So, okay. so I was like, all right, man, want me to go to school? Okay, I'll go to school. So I went to this little Catholic college out in Fairfield, Connecticut for a year. And um, they had a little college radio station. And me and my buddy who was from Wisconsin, who I met out there, he was really into hardcore punk stuff. And we raided the radio station and they still had albums in there from the 60s. Awesome. So we like stole all the good records from the college radio station. (laughs) (laughs) And they had the first Velvet Underground album. They had this uh, MC5, the second MC5 album. Of Van Morrison, like when Van Morrison got really big in the early 70s, they re-released all the Them stuff. Mm -hmm. So there was a Them album, but like from the 70s, you know? Yeah, yeah. And we were listening to that stuff, and man, that's really, that's how I got turned on to all that stuff. (laughs) You know? And we got into like Love, so we're like Love, Velvet Underground, uh, you know, MC5, uh, Them, and concurrently, we're like listening to like you know uh, Violent Femmes and and uh, sure. what's that Days of Wine Dream Syndicate, you know yeah. stuff like that too. So that's basically where the mod revival stuff comes in, right? Because you're you're kind of listening to a lot of the '60s. Also, a friend of mine, like I didn't have big brothers or sisters. Mick had a bunch of big brothers and sisters, so he had like a ton of great records just laying around his house from them. I didn't have that. But one of my friend's big brother had made a Who tape, a cassette tape of all the early Who stuff. I think it ended up, it was like meaty, beady, big and bouncy and the reissues of their first couple albums. Mm. And I discovered that early Who stuff and I was like, wow, wow. You know, so when I got into high school and I started listening to FM radio, then I discovered like... The Yardbirds, For Your Love, and The Stones, It's All Over Now by The Stones, and You Really Got Me by The Kinks, and all that. This was like 
1978 and Journey and Foreigner were huge, but the stuff that really like, I mean, I, yeah. I'm not going to like, I liked Sticks, I got to say. Like, I liked <laughs> Sticks, I liked Elton John, I liked Boston. Like yeah. I liked the stuff great. like that. Yeah. Pieces of Eight, it's fantastic. But I also, like, the stuff that really started to turn me on was like all that mid 60s british invasion animals love the animals yeah 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 so when i was in high school i started discovering all that stuff it's funny that you're listening to the early who at in the late 70s when like my preferred who is late 70s who and like keith's <laughs> drinking problem has really gotten bad and like the ox is just singing about hookers and, shit, and you're just, i'm just like i love these guys as grumpy old men this is amazing <laughs> I need to revisit that stuff. I mean, Quadrophenia is, is my go-to also, yeah. That album got me yeah. through high school. Without that yeah. album, I would not have made it through high school. It, I listened to it in high school, too, and it was one of my go-to records there. And I don't know, it's some, there's something about that album that really, really clicked and resonated with me. It just speaks to the teenage mind, you know? Yes, um, Absolutely. And it's like a balm for the teenage mind, you know? Yeah. I mean, it has some, like, you know, complex concepts, but they're presented in a rock and roll fashion, you know? I mean, it really, it is really an opera, and it really speaks to that teenage condition, you know, in a kind of sophisticated yeah. way. I had a Walkman with that cassette in it, and that was plugged <laughs> into my ears for like a solid year when I was like 16, yeah. you know? Same. So. Yeah, our, our dad was giving us all that music, and yeah, Quadrophenia was up there for us. Yeah. So shortly after onset is when you, Mick, and Peggy wound up forming the Gories. Is that right? Can you tell us a little bit about how the Gories got together? Um. Yeah, you know, the onset was like... You know, we were into the Who and the Jam, we, but we met at an R.E.M. concert. Like, we also oh, liked wow. the R.E.M. and stuff like that. But there was something about it that just wasn't scratching an itch for me, you know? Yeah. So I started, I had already been hanging out with Mick. I met him through a mutual friend who actually lived out in the suburbs, who happened to run into Mick at a, I think it was a King Sun, a free King Sunny Day concert down in downtown <laughs> Detroit outdoors. <laughs> wow. And he had met Mick there because of a T-shirt. One of the guys had on a T-shirt that the other guy liked, and they started talking to each other. And so, <laughs> yes, cool. Mick, yeah, Mick, being the absolutely T-shirt obsessed person that he is, I think this That's guy, right. this guy from the suburbs, had on this shirt, and so Mick <clears throat> started talking to him. So anyway, I knew this guy from the suburbs through my bandmates, who were all from, in fact, Pantano was from the same suburb as these other guys I was in the band with. Okay. And they okay. were buddies with him. I knew Pat back in those days when he was in the Colors. Right. Yeah. So they were buddies with him. They were from Madison Heights, Pat's from Madison Heights. Wow. So I started hanging out with those guys and doing onset stuff. But yeah, there was just something about that which just wasn't scratching an itch for me. And... From the jam and the who, I started getting more into like Bo Diddley and Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and Chuck Berry and, you know, wanted to do something more like that. And I started hanging out with Mick and I would go pick up Mick and take him to the onset shows with me, mm -hmm. you know, and he had suggested at one point that the onset should do a cover of a contour song called It Must Be Love.
which we did do, <clears throat> and I yeah. think we actually did like an okay job of it. I wish I had a recording of that. But Mick was already like, you know, suggesting cool covers, and I was like, God, this guy's interesting, you know. And I would hang out with him, and we'd go back to his house to drop him off because I always picked him up, and I would often even pay to go into the show. I'd pay for, you know, I was just like just to hang out with him. <laughs> I would just pick him up and you know pay for him and all that stuff because he never had money. So, <laughs> so you know, we would go home to his house and we would just sit out in front of his house talking actually mick did all the talking i just listening <laughs> but he would talk and talk and talk and he had all these bands in his head but he talked about them as if they actually existed that yeah. sounds about right yeah <laughs> there was no line between imagination and reality that's it was all one thing yeah, because like even the dirt bombs would later turn into that, right? It's just a concept, and then it, it kind of became right. real. Then that's what made me think of that because Pantano was yeah. talking about that, the the you know that Mick approached him with this concept. Yeah, right. no, Mick like he there were like four different bands in his head already when I met him, <laughs> and he'd never gotten out of the basement. You know? they leave it to a comic book nerd to yeah, start building exactly. all, this, all this stuff he's in got his, a whole yeah. so <laughs> yeah he had this whole world in his head and all each band had a video they had an album Amazing. cover they played a certain type of music they had song titles and he's telling me all this stuff I'm like man I gotta get this guy into a band like we gotta do something real yeah so we started hanging out more and more and then Peg came into the picture and we started hanging out with Peg and one night we were all in my room at my parents' house when I still live with my mom and dad, drinking some beers, listening to this music. And I had this uh, garage comp called Scum of the Earth that was playing. And somebody had taped it for me, so it was the cassette of that thing. Yeah. And we're listening to it, and Mick goes, you know, these songs only have like three chords in them. We, c we could play this stuff. And I was like, let's do it. Let's yeah. do it. Let's let's do it. We're doing it. You know, that, I, I was it. waiting for that. You know, I love that you waited for it to be his idea. <laughs> well, it wasn't purposely. It was just like that was our, kind of brewing in my head. Like, I got to get yeah. this guy into a band. We yeah. Got, so, yeah, when he said that, I was like, all right, that's it. Let's do yeah. it. We're doing it. Time to pounce. I mean, right. Yeah. Mick probably already had merch ideas. Peggy, yeah. you're playing drums. We're going to have a, like a there's a really primitive uh, drum kit. There's going to be no cymbals. Uh, it's just going to be Tom Tom's total Bo Diddley beat. And Peg was like, no, no way. I'm not doing it. I have no interest in this. <laughs> you know, and I was like, you have to do it. You have to do it. We're doing this. You know, and so then we started like laughing about it. And Mick got all comic book and was like, yeah, it's going to be the worst band ever. And we're going <laughs> to, you know, we're going to drive people screaming out of the room, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> so then immediately Mick like wrote a couple songs. You know, he yeah. wrote You Make It Move. <laughs> Thank you. 
came up mostly with Thunderbird ASQ, and I added a couple of lines to finish it off. I'm going out, gonna get my girl, gonna go to the store, buy some Thunderbird. Gonna get in my car, find some place to be alone. And we're gonna start drinking till it's all gone. Is that about Thunderbird, the... Uh, the, the fortified wine. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> we yes. got a bottle of that, I think, as a joke one Christmas from a friend. We, it's all right. They it's haven't fine. made it for like 30-some years. Then, man, I shouldn't have gotten rid of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was a grape-flavored Thunderbird. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's like a... Because Thunderbird, regular Thunderbird is a white wine. You know, it's very Okay, yeah. ESQ was the purple version, the red wine version. Okay. They tasted a little bit more grape-like. I, <laughs> I still have a bottle. Does yeah. it say that on the bottle, this this wine tastes grape-like? No. No, there's no warning. There's no, no warning. warning label. <laughs> Given no warning. It, but it does say ESQ. I mean, it says, and it stands for extra special quality. So, yeah. uh, so it's not Esquire. Okay. No, extra special <laughs> quality. Yeah. So I went, I actually took Mick and Peggy to the onsets practice space. We practiced in one of those storage units mm-hmm. that you yeah. weren't supposed to do. That, <laughs> right. Yeah. I was going to say like, that sounds like a, like a, some sort of a violation. And in the middle of the winter, we would practice with like coats and scars and, you know, <laughs> yeah, no, it was hardcore. So I took the Mick and Peg there, of course, without asking the other guys. You know, this was yeah, like a yeah. secret mission to see what we could do. <laughs> yeah. And we had like original songs right away. And there was something there. That's crazy. And there is a tape of the first Gory's practice. Really? In the storage unit? I have a copy of it. Oh, my is it goodness. Is it ever going to see the light of day? Maybe. Okay. I mean, we'll get Ben Blackwell's ear on this one and have him re-release that. (laughs) Vault exclusive. Vault exclusive. Right, because only five people are going to be interested in it anyway. Are you kidding me? The blue room was packed when you guys were there. All right, ten. (laughs) You guys are now plastered all over that Detroit Third Man Records. Oh, no, yeah, I know. There's like a nine-foot-tall Danny and Nick (laughs) up there in that room. Yeah, that's pretty cool. The name, the Gories, that came from an episode of Gidget? That is correct. I think we found the the episode. There's something in there where, uh, in the show, where she declares her band, Gidget and the Gories, have gone spooky. Did you all make a pact to go spooky as well at any point in time? (laughs) Absolutely not. Okay, there's no spooky. All right. No, I'll tell you how that came to be. So there was one summer where they it might have been like the summer of like 85 or something and they were showing gidget reruns on tv naturally and my sister and i got obsessed with it Um, sally field she's great well yeah in the in the mid in the mid 80s all we cared about was the 60s for the most part you know yeah so there was like a, a 60s tv show we'd never seen before and it was cool and it had sally fields and I mean, it was funny, surfer, squeaky clean, yeah. fun, you know. <laughs> this is pre-Flying Nun, I think. 
Yeah. Uh, yes, it was pre-Flying Nun. You're right. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Flying Nun must have come right after Kitchen. And that Flying Nun was on reruns in the 70s. Right. But I'd never seen Gidget before. It was a revelation, you know? So my sister and I started taping them. If you're in doubt about angels being real, I can arrange to change any doubts you feel. And we came across that one episode. So when we formed the Gores, I was like, well, we need like this authentic 60s name. And how about this Gores? Because it's from Gidget. It's from the 60s. And it's like (laughs) a weird, obscure Gidget reference. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. You played right into Mick's hands there. So and there's one in the episode. The episode's on YouTube now. I mean, it's like everything's on YouTube. But there was like... One point where the announcer is like, and now uh, the horribles, you know, and and Mick was like, I wanted to call it the horribles. I thought that. (laughs) (laughs) Of course he did. But yeah, no, that's how the Gories came to be. And we played a a festival in France one time within the last, you know, five or ten years. And they actually had a clip from the Gidget and the Gories TV show playing on big screens, like while we were playing. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, it was cool. You had the band idea. You had the practice space. Now, obviously, you said you practiced, but how long between inception of the band and your first, you know, stage performance? Not long at all. Like, we... I think we're all in agreement, but I I just wanted to get up there and play. I didn't care how, quote unquote, good we were or how bad we were. I didn't really did not care. I just wanted to get up there and do it. How practiced in guitar were you at this point? Because you were you were playing it in the onset, right? Or or were you playing bass? I had just started playing guitar in the onset in the last days of the onset. Like maybe the onset lasted like two or three years, two years maybe. Okay. And near the end, I was starting to play a little rhythm guitar. I'd bought a cheap Vox Hurricane, which sounds cool, but it's not really a very good guitar. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I played that rhythm guitar a little bit and sang. I was the lead singer in the onset. I just sang. Yeah. You know, I was the Roger Daltrey of the onset. You know? Right. But yeah, I started playing a little bit of rhythm guitar on a couple songs near the end. So I had kind of, you know, started doing that. had really never played lead guitar before in his life (laughs) that band i mean you guys there's that floor tasters those guys it was just a basement band (laughs) and they played one of those plastic chord organs and they beat on like cans wow and one of the guys had like a cheap japanese bass or something but i think mick played the chord organ he never played guitar before that's wild the first stage performance was it like an open mic? How, it how was you... an open mic. It was an yeah. open mic hosted by Rob Tyner. 
Oh, my God. Yeah. There was a church on the Wayne State campus of called... Of the MC5, right? Yes. The yeah. lead singer of the MC5 was around Detroit quite a bit in the mid-'80s. We had no interest in him at all. <laughs> <laughs> to us, he was just a boring old fat hippie. Like, I really had no idea what he had done. I was so ignorant. I mean, I knew them and the Yardbirds and the Who, but I didn't know anything about the MC5. I mean, most people were ignorant of him until Rachel put on an MC5 shirt and friends. Except, I mean, I I did have that MC5 record from the college radio station, okay. but I didn't really put two and two together. Right, and right, it, right. I didn't like it as much as I liked them yeah, or the yeah. Velvet Underground. I got to yeah. be honest, you know. They're doing tutti frutti. I was like, eh, eh, I don't know. It's okay. <laughs> but yeah, so Rob Tyner was floating around. And his thing at that point, and there is one video of him doing it on YouTube, is he played the auto harp, you mm-hmm. know, and he kind of strummed it against his chest. And he sang these really cheesy, like, nostalgic songs about the Grandy and stuff like that, you know. A time machine, I'd take you back with me To the heyday of the brandy And all the wonders there to see You see the walls ablaze with color Smell the incense in the air Hear the music sound and fury he was only like 40 at this point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, looking back, I'm like, what were you doing, man? <laughs> But that was his deal then, you know, and he would sing. And so so he had this open mic night. And, I mean, no, nobody went to it. I mean, there was like, you know, 10 people there maybe. But it was in this church, in the auditorium of this church. And that was the cool thing is anybody could get up there and do something. And we had to wait. I mean, we were pushed to the last, of course. Yeah. So we had to wait through everybody. We had to we had to sit through a whole set of Rob Tyner doing his auto harp songs. <laughs> we were falling asleep, getting drunk. Peggy took mushrooms. You know. <laughs> yeah. So finally, we got our turn, and we we knew I think four songs at that point. We did a cover of First I Look at the Purse," which of course was suggested by Mick. I think we did "Thunderbird Q, "You Make It Move." I don't know. There might have been one more. Yeah. But we barely made it through those like three or four songs. But that was the start, man. I mean, it was like we didn't even I mean, that was our practice was just being on stage. That sounds like a rough trip, though, on Mushrooms is Peggy going on stage, barely yeah. ever playing drums before. No, and Mick was. Um, yeah, that's hardcore. Yeah. And, and Mick was super drunk on Thunderbird. And I don't know if you I don't know if you're familiar with that whole um Len Putch, uh, Garage Land, uh, Wang Head Records thing. But he had a record out with this guy, Vegas Raz. No, sorry. Okay, anyway, Vegas Raz was there. And there was like a light switch that controlled the stage lights. And he started flicking it on and off. And Peggy freaked out. And she's like, stop it! <laughs> Stop! Oh, I would have lost my mind. Yeah, the auto harp would probably be very soothing, though. I feel like that would be very nice. <laughs> but there was like two or three of our friends there who were very encouraging, and you That's know, good, yeah. we just kept going and just. I just started booking us shows, like whoever would have us play, you know. Yeah. And luckily, at that time, there were a bunch of bars in like Hamtramck in Detroit, where bands who could barely play or, or had all original material could do. Sats, you know, turn the light on here. 
There you are. Just to go back to the hallucinogenics for a moment, we talked to Dex Romweber, and he was telling us about like he used to go on stage tripping on acid. And I used to, I was thinking to There's, myself, I could never do that. How? How could you do that? No, like, I've, I I've been reading Total Chaos, the Stooges book, and Iggy's talking about doing like two hits of acid before a show. And how? Jesus. How do you hold it together? Dude, I would I be no curled idea. up in a fetal position yeah, on the no stage. Idea. I couldn't Amazing. do it. I mean, Wild. yeah, Iggy's a legend, so who knows? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> when you're at the point in your life where you're not asking, can you hold your liquor, but you're asking, can you hold your acid? <laughs> you realize you've reached a certain zenith. Yeah, that's that's real psychedelic astronaut stuff. There. <laughs> Jesus. Well, to fast forward a bit, I mean, the Gorys obviously have a long, illustrious career off and on. There's huge gaps in the the history of the Gorys between playing music. When you guys get back to work together, is there a sense that the other kind of members' evolving musical growth has changed the direction of the Gorys? Because originally it's that raw sound, like Peggy not knowing the drums, you guys not knowing guitar. All right, well, let me say this. Now, since because we're reformed, comeback, whatever band, we've seen other bands do that. We've been excited about other bands coming back that we loved. And when they don't sound like they did before, we don't like it. Mm. You know, like I don't want to go see the Sonics and the guitar players like showing you all these licks that he knows now. Like, I don't (laughs) care. I want to hear him play the stuff that's on the record. That's what I like. That's what I want to hear. So with the Gories, we're very conscious of that. Like, I don't, you know, I can, I'm a pretty good guitar player now, but I have no interest in showing off licks for a Gory show. I want to do the most faithful version of the Gories that I can do. Right. And it's, I think we all pretty much feel the same way. No, we do. We feel the same way. I mean, sometimes Mick will throw a few licks in there that he's learned since. There's not a crudeness, but there's, you know, that rough around the edges vibe is there. And I enjoy that. I mean, you're right. People hear the Gories and want that same kind of uh, rough vibe. I mean, we're not those people. So we can't do it exactly like it was before, but we try to keep it as faithful as possible to. It doesn't sound sound like a pastiche, if that's the word I'm looking for. It sounds like you're actually, you know, I do hear there's musical growth. You guys obviously know how to play the instruments more readily, so there's something. No, we do tighter. Yeah, our sets are way, way tighter than they were back in the day. When you were describing that initial four-song set or whatever, it was really making me think about the White Stripes first show which was similar i think it was Mm. what two or three songs or something and they just were basically trying to get through it right and you know it's one of those things you know like the white stripes i i think jack's made it no secret that he was looking at what you guys were doing and and was a great admirer of your work and so it's interesting to me to see those parallels i think he you know he might have wound up gaining some inspiration from that all right uh let's bore you for two or three songs This is uh, St. James Infirmary um, by Cab Calloway. Well, folks, I'm going down to St. James Infirmary. Like he made like a Gory's cover band, basically. Yeah, kind he was trying of, yeah. to play the blues as a white kid, and he had a drummer who didn't know how to play drums. It was, you know, not to diminish Meg's right. talent and, and everything, yeah. but it feels very similar. And then, you know, it's 
one reason why when I found the Gories, I instantly really enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, there, yeah, there's no doubt, you know, yeah, no doubt he was influenced by the Gories. I mean, he says as much. And then you and Mick released that amazing Winter Blues and Greens album back in 2017. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about how that record came to be? Yes. Uh, Mick had the idea for that. He There's always some reference with Mick that you wouldn't expect. Like when we learned that Earl King song, Trick Bag, I'd never heard it before. He knew that song from a Robert Palmer record. <laughs> Like, he'd never heard the Earl King one. Oh my God, he does dress a little like Robert Palmer. I'm just now realizing this. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he comes at things that in, in a way that you wouldn't expect. And so he had, I guess there's a Rock Pile album that has a seven inch in it that's Nick Lowe and um, uh, what's the other guy? Oh, um, uh, I hear you knock at Dave Edmonds. Yes, Nicolo and Dave Edmonds did this EP where they did kind of an every uh, acoustic Everly Brothers style thing. Yeah. And Mick, like, you know, contacted me one day and he's like, I want to do this acoustic Everly Brothers style thing with you. And I was like, all right, I'm down. And then he met up with Miriam at Norton Records and she had boxes full of Kim Fowley lyrics. <laughs> just lyrics no music and i guess she had said to mick at one point do you think you could put music to some of this stuff so mick remembered that and he was like i want to do that with these kim folly songs i was like oh that sounds cool so i went over i went to visit him in new york to record this thing and we went to miriam in billy's house billy was still alive then and went through all these uh it was just Kim Fowley, like, poems on paper, like, just printed out, you know. And we're going through them, and I picked out a few. Like, there's that one, uh, Cemetery Club, I picked that one out of there. And there's something else, I picked out a couple. And Mick had already picked out a couple. And we wrote, together, we wrote music to them. Like a lover that's a, an interesting way to work backwards in a way i feel like Lyrics are usually the latter half of a songwriting book. That's not how I write songs. No. I mean, when I write songs, I come up with the music and then I use what Iggy calls the blurt method, where I just sort of blurt out 
sounds. <laughs> You're blocking it in, yeah. Your scrambled right. eggs, if you will, from McCartney. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Exactly. And there's certain vowel sounds and certain consonants that go well with the rhythm and the, you know. And once you get those consonants and vowels worked out, then you can kind of, yeah, then you can, that's like the sketch, and then you can fill it in with words. Yeah. Right. And that's how yeah. I, a lot of people do it that way. But, but yeah, no, we had all the words, and then we wrote music to them. Well, you and Mick have teamed up a lot over the years. We'll jump here to just after the Gorys split the first time in the aftermath of that breakup, you had linked up with Bob, Mark, Tom, and Jeff with Rocket 455. Can you tell right. us a little bit about how you found yourself in that group? There's a, a more raucous, I don't want to say angry, but it's definitely got a different energy. It's more like a, mm-hmm. like it's like the Gorys on caffeine. or so. I, I don't know what it is about it. But. Well, we're getting into 1992, 93 here. And at that point, like Mud, Honey, and Nirvana were starting to come out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're talking a lot about the MC5 and the Stooges. And I'm hearing this and I'm going, man, why isn't there a new band in Detroit? influenced by that kind of stuff you know right i saw a void and i thought we need to fill this you know so jeff had been in a band called the nervo beats and i really liked his guitar playing in fact i really liked him and i liked the bass player in that band so i wanted to get jeff in a band with me so i started jamming with him I started jamming with the Nervo Beats in general around the right after the Gory's European tour, right after we kind of broke up. Yeah. I started jamming with those guys and I ended up really liking a couple guys in the band more than the other ones. So I was like, all right, I was basically going to steal those guys out of this band and make Rocket 455 was my <laughs> idea. And I came up with a name. Uh, my wow. Margaret at the time, she was my girlfriend and she had an Oldsmobile 98 it was like about a 73 old 98 and it had a 455 Oldsmobile engine it had a yeah. rocket 455 yeah. Olds wow. engine in there so so I was like that's a cool name we got to do that so you know I started jamming with Jeff but Jeff ended up being a package deal yeah there wasn't Jeff without Mark Walls yeah right and I, originally, I was going to be the singer. I was going to write the songs. I was going to sing. But I couldn't get Jeff without Mark. Yeah. So then it was Mark. It was half of the Nervo beats already. So so, so Mark <laughs> ended up singing. And we were trying to find a drummer. And I, at that point, I was thinking of Pantano, actually. Because yeah. he was like the best drummer around at that point. Him and this guy, Jerry Bartarian, were the two kind of best He's such a rock too, Pantano. It seems like yeah, yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. But that didn't really end up happening, and he—that was right around the time he joined the Dirt Bombs. But yeah, no, that was my idea. It was basically my band at the beginning. Okay. Yes. So then um, we got Bootsy, and he ended up being a really good drummer. He's yeah. You know, the doll rod started right around the same time. 
Let's talk about that. I, I, it's almost got a little bit of a traveling Woolberries thing here with Danny Dalrod, right? That was not the furthest thing from my mind. <laughs> <laughs> no, Margaret had come up with this idea. It was like yeah. she she came on the Gories tour with us in '92. Uh huh. The band broke up when we got home. I was really depressed. Margaret and I were living together. I was really directionless at that point. I didn't know what to do. And I was in a funk and I was trying to get Rocket 455 together, but Margaret had another idea at the same time. And she's like, well, you know, I got this name for a band. And I'm like, well, okay, let's hear it. She goes, Demolition Doll Rods. I was like, that's a great name. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. And she said, yeah, well, I also would, you know, I want it to be an all-girl band, but I want you to be in it. I'm like, okay. <laughs> would you be a girl in my band? And I'm like, uh, okay, sounds fun, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of needed to do something that was a big break from the Gores at that point. And, yeah. you know, in like 92, 93, that kind of thing was in the air, you know? Getting wild. You almost have a glam aspect to it, to the... Yeah, no. And it's like I wanted to kind of, you know, explore more more Velvet Underground, more 70s punk rather than 60s punk. Yeah. New York, I started to really get into New York Dolls at that point. Stooges, super, super into the Stooges. So I really wanted to explore more of that kind of stuff. So that was like perfect for that. One of the things I love about that band is the humor. There's a irreverence, rather, should I say, to it. Like, yeah, you know, the, that Get It On video that you guys shot. It's awesome video shot in the basement of the Detroit Film Center on 16 millimeter. Yeah. <laughs> You know, there's so much fun. And I don't know if I'm surprised you didn't notice that that's a rip off of a White Stripes video. Uh, what? Is it really? <laughs> yeah. You know how there's, so there's this White Stripes video where they do these quick cuts between Jack and Meg. You know, it's like. Which I don't really? remember what song it is, but yeah, you oh know, God. the guy who directed it was like, well, I was thinking of doing this thing like that White Stripes video. And we're like, all right, cool. You know? It's so <laughs> funny. Because when I was watching it, I was thinking actually that I thought the Rack and Tours ripped you guys off because it was reminding me of the video for Sunday Driver when the, the camera is going around the band. Oh, and so, yeah. So it's funny to me that you guys thought you were riffing on the stripes and i thought that jack was riffing on you. it might have gone that way you know <laughs> that's like cool. full circle the cyclical nature but there's a whimsy there I, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that like there's was the wink and the nod something built into the mission statement there i guess it sort of had to have been if you were you were being asked to join a girl group well the, i gotta say the doll Ross was margaret's thing mm-hmm. it's really margaret's thing and that whimsy is built into her thing that's her approach like i don't know in that band i'm kind of like musical director like i she has all these great ideas and these awesome words and she puts words together in ways i would never think of doing but i can kind of like 
translate her ideas into more coherent songs, maybe. Mm-hmm. And it's not yeah. she can write songs on her own. It's not that. But there's something that I bring to it that makes it the Dalras as opposed to other bands she's done, you know? Yeah. I bring, like, certain things into the arrangement arranging of her songs that adds that dimension to it i guess but it's all like all the whimsy all the weirdness all the sexual double entendres and all that's all (laughs) the costumes costumes yeah the whole idea of being naked for a while and all that stuff It's cool, though. It really grabbed our attention. I actually discovered it when I watched that Detroit documentary, that Detroit Underground documentary that you guys were on, I think, with with the Dirt Bombs and the Stripes and a whole bunch of other bands. Uh, I think it was from, like, 99, Yeah, the Dutch. There was a Dutch film crew. I think it was later, a bit later than that, maybe 2002 or something. And I've been kind of, like, obsessed with the the band since. It's really, really fun. I like it a lot. And I was really happy to hear that in October you guys released Into the Brave, which is uh, on in the Red Records, uh, which is the first full length record in like what sixteen years? Uh, <laughs> yeah, since like oh five, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So what's it like getting back into the to the Dalrod saddle? Like riding a bike, man. Yeah. Yeah, really. I mean, it's just like getting right back on and started paddling. happened because well margaret married an italian citizen she married an italian guy and 10 years later i married an italian citizen so we're both married to italians and they're and they've become friends fortunately and i had danny and the darlenes for a couple years we did the two albums yes and that broke up and i wasn't doing that much i mean i had some solo stuff going on but my wife was saying, you need a band. Like, you're really good in a band. You should be in a band. you got to get another version of the Darlene's together. And I was like, ah, I don't know. Those guys, like, I mean, Richie was such a perfect drummer for that band. Colleen's such a great bass player, and she can sing backups. I mean, that kind of stuff's hard to find, you know. And I don't want to, like, try to get new people. And, and she, you know, was kept bugging me. Like, you got to... You really do good work in a band. You should be in a band. So she was talking with Margaret's husband. And Margaret's husband said, you know, Margaret had a band at the point called Heartthrob Chassis. And her guitar player had just left Heartthrob Chassis. She'd been playing with him for a few years. And he wanted to do other things. So he left. So Margaret's husband told my wife, yeah, you know, Margaret's, uh, you know, guitar player just, just quit. Like, and my wife was like, huh, really? Okay. So the next thing I know, my wife comes up to me and she's like, we're going, grab your guitar. We're going to Margaret's. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, okay. <laughs> okay. So yeah. we went over there and went down to the basement and started playing and immediately like songs started coming out. That's so great. Yeah. 
Now, this is starting to make me think that perhaps while you weren't in a band, you had picked up some kind of annoying hobby that she was trying to get you back into a band to do like bonsai or something along those lines. No, that... I'm kidding, of course. But, <laughs> no, it's just um... a bomb, man. That's all. <laughs> You've got to be in a band. Just a bomb. I really love this record. Intergalactic Friend is such a badass track. I... Man, I'm glad you like it because I'm super happy with it. And my wife did the cover oh, art, nice. and we will just like put on the record at home yeah. and jam out to it. Smoking Hot Hair Day is downright anthemic. It's you mentioned sticks earlier. Not not that it sounds like sticks, but there's almost like a like an arena quality to it. guys feel comfortable in that more melodic space with the doll rods because you guys can be pretty pretty powerful too you know maybe not quite the the same kind of energy as rocket 455 but can you tell us a little bit about how the doll rods sound especially on this new record weaved in and out of some genre well you know we always have you know a lot of interests and and tastes and stuff like that but a lot of it's Margaret, really. I mean, she's, you know, I just kind of guide her and add stuff that I think I can, I kind of understand. She's not like really musically literate, but she, she's very intuitive. Sure. So I can kind of anticipate what she's trying to do and fill that in Yeah, with stuff that she might not have thought of. Almost like a producer on the floor of the... The, yeah, kind the, of, the, kind of like that. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of Velvet Underground in the Dow Rods, and yeah, we, I can see that. Margaret and I really both love, you know, a lot of the same music. And Margaret also has a taste for like cheesy anthemic rock stuff. You know, yeah. I mean, she's not bound by any conventions of what something quote unquote is supposed to sound like. Yeah. You, I mean, you all bring it down to earth, though, you know, whenever you're doing it. It's, it's what I loved about it, you know, listening to this record. Well, thanks, man. I'm super, like I said, I'm super happy with it. I'm really disappointed that we can't do shows right now because, I, I mean, Shelby's a really great drummer for the Doll Rods and she sings really good backup vocals. She does backups live. I love doing backup vocals. So it's cool to have like two backup vocal people going and. Yeah. No, it's good. I can't. It's frustrating. Hopefully later this year. We'll see. We'll yeah, see how it goes. But I know, man. Yeah. If you come around these parts, I'll be one of the first people to get a ticket. Well, so. I hope we hit Pennsylvania and California. Yes. Yeah, come on by. And every place in between, man. That would be amazing. You had mentioned to us, and we had actually uncovered this too, which is super interesting. You helped produce Two Star Tabernacle's Lily White Mama yes. single featuring Andre Williams. That whole single is great. I love it. That single introduced me to Andre Williams, and I've I've kind of huh. followed his his work since then. Were you there for the recording of this, or, or were you just passing? Man, the album? let me tell you a story about it. Was I <laughs> what, there for the recording? What, what happened? Was there? I there? Um, yes, I was there. I think Jeff Meyer got that thing together. 
because Jeff was working a lot with Jack in the beginning. It just mm-hmm. like with recording stuff. And Jeff had like brought over a bunch of mics and a recorder and stuff. And they set up in Jack's living room in the house he grew up with in on Ferdinand. Right. And I had already been, the doll rods had already started working with Andre. So I was the Andre connection. And I think oh. Jack got the idea that he really wanted Andre Williams to sing the big three killed my baby. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. So Jack was like, I don't remember who called me and asked me to bring Andre over there, but somebody did. And I think it was because Jack wanted to do that specifically. Yeah. So I brought Andre over to the house and, you know, the session is going, they recorded the, the, what's the song on the other side? It's not Uh, 16 tons. It's something like that. It's kind of a standard country standard, if I remember correctly. So they did that. They recorded that without a hitch. That that came off fine. That was done. Well, I could settle down and be doing just fine till I hear an old train coming down. for Jack to teach Andre the big three killed my baby. So Jack is hell bent on Andre singing this song and he's trying to teach it to him and Andre just is not understanding it. He just does not get it. He kept saying, what's my motivation? (laughs) What's my motivation? You know, and he just... Ramblin' Man is, yeah, Ramblin' Man was the uh, B-side. Hank Williams? Yeah, 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 that's it. So they had that went off without a hitch. That was not that was easy. But trying to teach Andre the big three kill my Andre just wasn't getting it. He just it was he just they just didn't understand this thing at all. And the session kind of broke down. Like Jack spent a lot of time trying to teach this thing to him. And Andre was just like, no, nah, I, I don't get it. I'm sorry. This is just <laughs> not working for me. And I'm sitting there going, man, what are we going to do to save this session? You know, because this yeah, is yeah. like ground to a screeching halt here. Right. So I remembered my roommate had a comedy album on Chess Records that Andre had produced by a guy called Ray Scott. And it was mostly just a spoken word comedy album. But one of the tracks was a song called Lily White Mama and Jet Black Dad. And it happened to be a country song. <laughs> so I was like, dang, that might work for this. So I was like, all right, you guys, what do you think about recording Lily White Mama and Jet Black Dad? Yeah. And I mean, none of the Two Star Tabernacle guys had ever heard it. But I said, look, it's this country song. It's kind of a comedy number. And Andre's like, man, I don't know. The words are kind of dated. I was like, don't worry about it. We'll change it. We'll drop. We'll cut out the stuff that doesn't work. So I ran home, drove home to I lived on the other side of town at the time, grabbed the record, drove back. We put the record on and everybody learned the song. We decided to, you know, cut out a reference to the Vietnam War and something else that dated it mm-hmm. and recorded that. So I saved that session. <laughs> Lily, 
a lily white And my daddy was jet black They got me so confused I don't even know where it's at One half white The other black I got me a major problem Can I get an amen? That's hilarious I... I... It became the A side of that. <laughs> right, yeah, it did. <laughs> right, right, it came out good. So, so when we were recording it, Jack switched to piano, uh-huh. and his guitar was just sitting there. So I was like, "Man, nobody's playing this guitar. I'm going to pick this thing up." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was like it was the guitar that he played in the early White Stripes, that hollow body Japanese red hollow body. Yeah, the, the airline. airline. Right, but but it wasn't the plastic airline. It was okay. a wooden uh, hollow okay, body yeah. with F holes. Right. It wasn't the airline. It was something else, some other Japanese guitar. So that was sitting there with his silver tone amp. And I just wandered over there and picked it up and started playing. I didn't even ask him, you know, I was just like, oh, you know, so, so I went over there, picked that up and started playing these little country licks along with Jack playing piano and then everything. So those like kind of lead guitar country licks that you hear on that is me. Yeah. Wow. That's so we wild. did that. And then I guess a, about a few days later, Dan Miller called me. He was like, hey, come to my house and check out what we did. So I was like, okay. So I went over there and him and Jack were there. And they were like, check this out. And they, Jack had laid that acoustic dobro solo on there. Uh-huh. I was like, oh, okay. You know, I mean, I was like, uh, I wish you guys would have conferred with me before overdubbing (laughs) this thing, but all right. So we went to, uh, uh, I think we went to the temper mill, Dave Feeney's studio Uh and mixed it down. And now, like, I just listened to it recently, and we should have faded that thing out at two minutes and 30 seconds, man. <laughs> I don't know why we let the whole, like, almost five minutes go on. It was just too much. If we would have faded it at 2.30, it would have been perfect. Now, there's something to be said about, you know, leaving you wanting more. However, the fanatic in me who wants to listen to more of it is very happy that it's a five Well, it would have made, so. like, a great vault track down yeah. the road. I, I but- mean... Anyway. At least we got we got a, a recording of Big Three Killed My Baby as, yes. as that right. track. So, which is I'm I'm glad somebody was recording it. So they <laughs> so. finally did put out Andre trying yeah, to. Yeah. Okay. Yes, okay. and it does sound off. I, I don't know if "confused" is the right word. Uh, he, that is that, absolutely the right. Because <laughs> he's try, is, it, maybe shall we say still? It's a, it sounds Andre like was very confused by this. <laughs> yes. You've worked with Andre a bunch since then, and I remember seeing your name pop up a lot on I Want to Go Back to Detroit City, which I picked up not long ago. That album is is great. Well, the album I had much more to do with was Silky. Yes. Yeah, and Silky's great, too. How did you guys meet? Like, was it through that? Or you were doing Doll Rod stuff, you said, with Andre. Uh, yeah. Um, okay, so the Doll Rods had gone out to New York City, and we played at Maxwell's in Hoboken, and we were opening for Andre. And at that point, Andre was associated with this guy named George Paulus, who that's a whole nother story. That guy befriended Joe Von Battle, famous Detroit blues record store owner and, and record, a guy who had a studio in the back of his store. So George Paulus had bought a bunch of Joe Von Battle's Detroit blues tapes and had done some reissues in the 70s, but like super raw, great 
unknown yeah. Detroit blues stuff. Anyway, Paulus got uh, hooked up with Andre and wanted to bring him back and do a very, a very traditional R&B kind of thing. So that's the kind of thing he was doing when we met him. And Norton Records had hooked him up with this very professional New York band of guys who could play 50s R&B really well with horns and that all that kind of stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when we opened for him, that's what he was doing. And it was really good, but he was intrigued by, I think it was really intrigued by, well, not only the naked ladies, <laughs> but... <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that was the the thing that caught his eye at first. But I think he liked how raw we were, you know. Yeah. I think he appreciated that. And we, in honor of the Greasy Chicken, which was our favorite Andre Williams song, we strapped fried chicken and biscuits to ourselves with saran wrap for that show. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. That's, yeah, that's that's something special. Uh, <laughs> so that definitely caught Andre's eye. Yeah, I could imagine. <laughs> I imagine. Yeah, and and Ooh, I think it tickled his fancy as well. So he wanted to he's he wanted to get to know these people, you know. So we got to know him, and then he started visiting Detroit and stuff, and hanging out with Margaret and all that. And Margaret was like, "Man, you and Mick need to do an album with Andre." That was Margaret's idea. Yeah. yeah. And she was like, well, let me call In The Red Records, and you guys should do an album on In The Red. So Andre had a notebook full of lyrics, but he didn't really have music. So Mick and I got together with him and looked at all his lyrics and kind of made up music, you know, to go with all these lyrics that he had. Right. And that became Silky. Grandfather used to tell us a little story about how the hustlers back then made their money. There wasn't no drugs then. They was doing it with that good old corn liquor. But he said you always had to be careful of that car with the star. Wow. He said. From what I hear of, of Andre, that's fairly typical is a little bit of unpreparedness but he he was such a prolific guy like he did a lot of he was amazing he was really really an amazing amazing guy you know he sounds like he was uh, and we've heard it from past guests who have worked with him before he sounds like an interesting individual to work with um (laughs) to say the least uh depending on his sobriety level at the time which i hear he was always interesting yeah no matter what i mean even when he was drunk but 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 he was way more fun when he was sober you know right uh and we really got the best work out of him on silky when he was sober Rest in peace, Andre. But the, those those albums are fantastic. Yeah. So Thanks, thank man. thank you for taking part in them, and th- <laughs> thank you for giving us the two star Tabernacle single because that's great. Glad you guys liked it. Which then brings us a little bit to the Go. Another thing you mentioned to us is that you were uh, a part of the Go's tracking the trail of the haunted beat, which is the the kind of like sequel slash pairing it's album. the prequel actually yeah to, to the haunted beat your ride uh which is amazing by the go if i didn't mention and you, you played on jigsaw man right that really kind of leans into that 60s mod vibe and and it, it really has a nice quality to like that whole song is, is great i mean it's 11 minutes long i think and i think you get jigsaw man halfway through but right how were you approached to play with uh, john bobby and mark 
At one point, Bobby asked me to join the Go. It was probably around 98. I don't know if it was before or after Jack joined. And I flat out said no. Why? Well, the doll rods were already happening. The doll rods were pretty happening at that point. You know, I wasn't interested in doing another band. I mean, it sounds to you guys like I was in a million bands, but I only really did one thing at a time. I wasn't I really didn't like to be one of those people who were in three or four bands. You know, I my philosophy is if you don't have one band that's worth focusing all your energy on, then why are you even doing this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would rather have one really good band than three mediocre bands. If you're in three or four bands, that's what it ends up being. There's the whole jack of all trades, master of none thing, you know. So yeah, yeah, it makes it makes sense. You know, I just want to have one thing that's really good, and that's it. So anyway, I just I wasn't interested in joining the go. But there was a point years later where Bobby called me up one day. He goes, "Man, I'm making a solo album. Will you play on it?" Oh, yeah, sure. You know, so I went over to his house. His studio was just in this little tiny bedroom and he had his computer and his, you know, stuff there where he could mix. And he played me the track. The track was already done. Mm -hmm. And he goes, I just want you to play guitar on this. And I was like, "Okay." So I had brought over a 12 string guitar and a regular Strat, you know, and a fuzz box. And he had a little like 112 speaker amp in, in the bedroom there. And he just played me the track like over headphones and I recorded it and he put a mic in front of the amp and I just recorded it right there in the bedroom sitting in front of his computer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that was like a total, yeah, it was just an overdub. It has a signature texture that you have, though, and you can tell it's your work on this. So there's a stamp on there. No, I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. You also played with John Krautner. Okay, so that's another story. So then, you know, (laughs) little did I know that this solo track that I played on, which I was very proud of, ended up on the cutting room floor, and he (laughs) totally re-recorded the whole album, and it ended up being a go album. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Wait, Bobby, what happened to that track I played on? Oh, oh, that might come out sometime later. I don't know, you know. We just ended up recording everything again. And, you know, it's, I was like, okay, whatever. So I got the readies together, and I was super into glam, pub rock, kind of. I wanted to do, like, a kind of a glam rock Rolling Stones kind of, I don't know, thing. Yeah. yeah. So I got, a, you know, a couple guys, Ben and Zach, but there was a point where I was like, man, I really need like some, I need, need better bass playing. I need a better, I need somebody who can play bass and sing backups. I mean, I want to up the level of this a yeah. little bit. So I called Bobby and I was like, dude, would you consider playing bass for me? Because he's an effing great bass player. Yeah. He's a great bass player and really good vocalist. And I knew that he could like nail the bass playing and backup vocals and stuff. Yeah. So we went over and jammed with him, and it sounded really good. And 
it looked like we were going to form, kind of form another band. And then the next thing I know, again, Bobby was a package deal. There's no Bobby without Johnny. <laughs> Which is fine. I love John, yeah. you know. Yeah. But that wasn't really what I had in mind. You'd you be know? getting a lot of these package deals. I hope you're getting free shipping. I hope so too, man. Yeah. <laughs> I should be getting free shipping. No, but it's just it's just it's the thing where you have something in mind and the other person has something else in mind and right, you don't right. really talk about it, it just happens differently yeah. than what you were thinking. I mean it'd be different if John Krautner was a terrible musician or something too, and he's wonderful. So No, yeah, yeah no, he's great. I mean, so I was like, Okay, cool, Johnny's in now. All right, we're gonna do something, it's gonna be like the move. Uh-huh. You know, where all the guys, all the guys in the front wrote their own songs. They all sang. I was like, this is going to be awesome. We're going to have like a, a new move, you know, and it right. could have been that it could have been that. So the skies above, in my mind, would have been like the move. What happened was it, it turned into another version of the go. OK, yeah. We actually played a show as the go at one point huh. in Grand Rapids. Huh. So... I thought we did some really good work together. I wish there was better recordings than just a couple of really badly recorded live shows. John and I actually came up with a song. Like we were practicing one day and John started playing this rhythm on guitar that was really cool. And I started singing to it. And like I said, I wish that band could have been like the move, but it just didn't work out that way. Yeah. It happens. It allowed you to move to do uh, other stuff with solo work and continue on with with other, you know, other bands. Right. But to get one last point that you had mentioned to us off mic, you apparently had sold Jack White and Iggy and the Stooges album at a stereo A amp? solo album. I sold them New Values. Oh. I don't know how that came about. <laughs> I don't. I lived in the studio <laughs> apartment by myself. I'd met Jack at the Gold Dollar. Yeah. He actually approached me one night at the Gold Dollar. I did, had no idea who he was. And he said, are you Dan from the Gories? <laughs> yeah, man. Well, pleased to meet you. What's your name? Oh, I'm Jack White. Big fan. La, la. So that's how I met Jack. So somehow, well, I don't know. Somehow he knew that I had a copy. I had an extra copy of New Values, uh-huh. which is a great album, by the way. Yes. So he called me up one day and he's like, man, would you sell me that? double you know your extra copy of new values i was like sure you know no problem and he he might have said something like i'm looking for a stereo amp do you happen to have an an extra one and those days you know like back in the 90s you could find stereo amps at salvation army for like 10 bucks yeah you know like ones from the 70s that still worked fine you know so i would collect i had a bunch of them because I would just, every time I saw one, I'd buy one, you know? Right. So I was like, yeah, I got an extra stereo amp, you know, if you want to come over and check it out. So he came by and uh, he bought the stereo. I th- I probably sold it to him for what I bought it for. I wasn't trying to make money. I was like, dude, yeah. I, I paid like 15 bucks for this thing. If you want to just give me 15 bucks, that's cool. So that's yeah. probably the New Values album that he got on board from is the wow. one I sold him. Sleep at night. I myself and brought 
That's crazy, because that just came out for the first time, basically. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, I knew they were doing that song back yeah. then. It was never recorded to an album, but it was played live a lot. I know. Right, but, right. Yeah, that's crazy. To wrap things up here, we just wanted to touch quickly on you had played and performed at the Third Man Cast Corridor opening. Right. That was a celebration that looked amazing. We weren't, unfortunately, able to attend, but we were just wondering, you know, how it was performing on a new stage and a new venue designed by Jack in the cast corridor. I mean, there must have been an element of surreal to that, you know, like, especially with all that time removed, as I sort of mentioned earlier, there's at this point, you guys are on the, a big fucking wall in there. Yeah. What was that like? Can you just give us some, some impression? Well, you know, I mean, it, it's not like something that just happened all of a sudden, you know, yeah. where it was a long time coming and, and I'm really happy that Jack got that place and got it together i lived a block away from there back in i don't know 15 20 years ago and we used to hang out down there in the late 80s and stuff so yeah it's changed a lot like i said i'm glad jack got that building Um, he did a beautiful job fixing it up it's so cool that he's got the manufacturing facility there now yeah yeah i'm honored that our photos on the wall it like adds kind of a serious amount of legitimacy to me in a way it's impressive to a lot of people which is like yeah it's cool it makes me look pretty legit (laughs) (laughs) i mean it's just like jack or led zeppelin or anybody else going back even to the people that we were talking about earlier that you're and the folk songs that you're covering on your solo records with third man you guys like every musician is one big link in the chain right and you know it's it's been really great to see your link right yours and mix link and and all these other detroit musicians kind of get their due and that's one of the part of the the beauty of third man in that way is that absolutely third man can kind of shine a light right on those links right right and it's it's really expanded james and my horizons you know just listening to all this stuff we would have never been aware of this so you've made so much beautiful music in your time we look forward to more and and thank you for walking through some of that with us today as i say you know or i think james said at the top you were just one of those figures that kept popping up whenever we do an episode it it, it inevitably would have something to do with you at some point in time so we'd been hoping to talk to you for a long time and and so thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome, Paul. It's my pleasure. James, my pleasure, man. Yeah, thank you so much. Everybody should go out and pick up the new album. And it uh, should be out when this episode is released. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Okay, so Detroit Blues uh, on Third Man. It's great. We encourage everybody out there to, to get it. Yeah. We'll have links in the description. Everybody go pick it up and uh, make sure you write us in and tell us what you think. And yeah, thanks again, Danny. This was a lot of fun. You're welcome. Anytime. James, that was a lot of fun. Thank you so much to Danny Crowe for joining us on the program today. Mm. Again, his mm. new album, Detroit Blues, is available now on Third Man Records and Tapes. I'm just going to start saying the end <laughs> tapes part because it sounds nice coming off the tongue. Thank you, Danny. I've got my copy. I'm very excited about it. Uh, my digital guy purchased mine digitally, you know. And so you all should do that too, if you haven't gotten it already. And his first album is also great and also available wherever fine music is sold and on the Third Man Records website. Some exquisite blues. 
And we have some other people to thank. We have our Patreon patrons. We have the people keeping the lights on, people donating to our Patreon, which you can find out how to do in an ad at the end of the program. We have Derek Ferguson, Forever Ferguson. We have Michael Brookfield, the Bone Brookfield. Tam Davis, our third person spirit every week. Tam, by the way, this interview would not have happened without Tam because Tam tagged Danny in a Facebook post on one of our shows. I don't remember which. And I was like, oh, Danny's on Facebook. That's how I'm going to get in touch with him. I did. That's how we got it together. So, Tam, thank you for doing that. That's like one of those made-to-order, ready, hot-and-ready podcasts for you. You did the, the tagging, and we did the, the podding. So thank you, Tam. We have Luke Sinclair, Luke Me Over Closely, Josh Aiken, or Joe Shaken all over. Melinda Taylor, send me an angel down. Julia and Tobias, the $3 hat migs. We have Stu Catter, Stu Driver, Kate McCoy, the Bones of the Operation, Brenda Englehart, we want to be the boys. Warm your Englehart, Yvette Wilkins, Wilkins on Sunshine, Brett Garski, the Brett Three Killed My Garski, Elizabeth Myers, One Eye, One Blank Stare, looking up Myers there. We also have Melinda Endress, you look pretty in your fancy Endress. And James is doing something to this document because it's <laughs> sorry, shifting around sorry. on me. Shane, Ben, Jim, son, or the Shane boy you've always known, and Ashley Forbes. Steady Ashley goes, thank you to all our Patreon patrons. We really, really appreciate the support. It helps keep the show running. Your yes. support helps keep the show running. I'm sorry I don't have a tote bag. We do. We have we tote bags. We do have a tote bag. And you can get one if you go to our merch site, which is bit.ly forward slash third men merch. Uh, and you can get a tote bag with some logos on it. That's always fun. And that's a good way to support our show. If you don't want to become a monthly member, you can buy some merch and that becomes a, uh, some of those proceeds go to us. You could do that. That would be great. If you'd like a tote bag with our name, our podcast names on it. Although we could make a tote bag with just our names on it, yeah. Paul. <laughs> I was going to say this is a tote bag with just a picture of James. <laughs> it's giving you the old wave. Just the old, little, just with a mouthful of pizza. Little how do you do? Yeah. Little yeah, rat hanging out his pocket. <laughs> I got one rat in my pocket yes. and the other one is taking my pizza slice. Any, good. Anyway. What's funny is I can see Suzanne on the webcam here and I can almost hear her disappointment in me. <laughs> oh, there she is. All right. Okay. Yes. The disappointment is audible. It's palpable. Yeah. Palpable oh, is a better a sigh, term. I gotta yeah. Say. You could also get in contact with us a number of ways you can do so by going to facebook.com slash third men and talk with us there. We're we're pretty active on there in Zuckerberg's palace. You can tweet at us at third men cast on Twitter. That's how we found Mr. Lars Fox. Tumble on down with us on Tumblr. That's thirdmenpodcast.tumblr.com. You can view our web page. That's thirdmenpodcast.com. You can email us thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments or just want to say hey uh we always love hearing from you guys it makes our day uh when we hear some nice things from you or if we get some new information that we didn't have previously it's always nice so you can feel free to email us there you can find us on instagram at third man underscore podcast where we post some pictures pertaining to the episodes at hand you can i, I dug out all my old uh, dodge and burn ephemera the other day and took some photographs of it and put it on the instagram it was a lot of fun i saw that it was great uh i wish i'd taken some photos of my dodge and burn stuff but we have the exact same dodge and burn stuff i know down to the large sized dodge and burn t-shirt that came in the best buy box the thing i've missed though is i have the singles box so i didn't take a photo of the singles box so oh okay yeah. Well, you guys will just miss out on that. All right. Yeah. 
you can find our show on ACAST. They host it. They're great. You can search us on YouTube where we post some visualizers and uh, episodes and whatnot on youtube.com slash C slash the third men podcast. And you can feel free to rate, review, and subscribe by going to the special link we have set up here. Thanks to Joe Shaken all over or Josh Aiken. That's rateus.thirdmenpodcast.com. And you can give us a five-star rating and review if you'd like. That would be just so darn kind of you. So thanks. Yeah. And we'd like to thank Sam Kubert and Tom Valente for the help in the recording of our theme song, Word of the Third Man, as well as Susanna Roundtree the lovely intros and outros of our program. And James, until next episode, mm-hmm. I will be looking for a home demolishing a doll mm-hmm. rod. Mm-hmm. Just uh, taking that doll rod and just breaking it down to its base elements, just really crushing it. Just It's good. And I will That be doll like- rod will be deconstructed. <laughs> Um, and I will be looking for a home in, um, I don't know, uh, an old horror Sam Raimi film because I hear they're rather gory. And that's the way we're ending it. And that's the way the cookie crumbles. <laughs> All right, bye, everybody. For more information or to contact the show, visit thethirdmen.wordpress.com or email at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at ThirdMenCast on Twitter and search The Third Men on Facebook. See you next time. Why did I just eat a piece of chewy crust as soon as we're about to talk? Let's go back to our song. Hey everybody, Paul here with a quick message for you. As James and I mentioned many times on the show, this podcast is 100% not for profit and a labor of our love for music. We pride ourselves in bringing you interesting, timely content as we have these past 100 plus episodes. Podcasting is, however, a weirdly expensive process and we actually lose money on hosting, time, equipment, advertising, and all the other little things that we need to do to make these shows for you. So, to help break even on some expenses like those, James and I have set up a Patreon account where you can, if you like, chip in a few bucks to help keep the lights on. It can be as much or as little as you can swing, and all donations are greatly appreciated. The last thing we want to do is hound anybody for cash, so just know that listening to our show is always payment enough. But if you would like to help us out, that would be amazing. All right. That's all from me. Remember, you can head to patreon.com slash thirdmenpodcast and a huge thank you to everyone who's donated already. All right, everybody. I'll see you on the show. And I'm Wayne Kaminsky. You are all invited to join us on a magical mystery trip through the lives of the Beatles every week on the Yesterday and Today podcast. This show details the chronological journey of the world's most famous band using music, interviews, and rarities collected since the debut of John, Paul, George, and Ringo onto the world stage. We're a fan-made production and we're available now on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. 
So sit back, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. <laughs> so who's who? I'm sorry. Oh no, it's okay. I'm James, by the way. Okay. Um, yeah, and uh, the other and gentleman, Paul. Paul. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah. Not sorry, a there was like somebody dragging a, 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 a shopping cart down the alley here. <laughs> I know that so sound I- well. <laughs> <laughs> One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. I like that you're trying to trick me now. You're like, I don't want this to work, so I'm just going to start it without telling you. <laughs> One, two, three, four. Okay. I feel like that so- matched. I feel like that was perfect. And are we sure that that person dragging a shopping cart outside Paul's window wasn't looking for an instrument? <laughs> That's hey, hey, might have been that might have been a composition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it might have been. <laughs> Get the f- out of here! Get the f- out of here! You can email us. <laughs> on our professional email. <laughs> it's, the, it's not a, the, the most succinct thing I've ever said, but it it certainly is a mouthful. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to just kind of shift around here, but yeah, it's fine. fine. He, um, that was awesome. That was great. <laughs> it was fun. Uh, so I'm going to press stop.